Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Is it well-seasoned or is it spicy? And if it's spicy, does that denote heat, like hot and spicy? On this week's Louisiana Eats, we explore these questions and more as we learn how the flavors of our spice cabinet can affect our food, our health, and our lives. We begin with Dr. Linda Shu, author of Spice Box Kitchen. After 10 years in general practice, Linda set out to treat her patients in a whole new way, through culinary medicine. In Spice Box Kitchen, Dr. Linda opens her medical bag and sets out to cure what ails you by prescribing herbs and spices used in recipes with a global perspective. And then we introduce you to the globe-trotting Lior Lev Sircars, who many consider to be a spice savant. Lior practices his spice magic at La Boite, his New York City spice store, a place frequented by some of the world's best chefs. Then, the dancing chef, Natasha McAller, waltzes in to explain how she herself became a spice health hero which is also the name of her 2016 book. Feeling a bit under the weather? Don't worry, we've got just what the doctor ordered on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Linda Shu, and I'm the author of Spicebox Kitchen. After 10 years of practicing medicine as a general practitioner, Dr. Linda Shu decided to join the small but growing field of culinary medicine. Linda was just starting to spread the word on the role spices can play in a healthy diet when Louisiana Eats first met her in 2016. Now a seasoned spice expert, Linda's back with a new book, Spice Box Kitchen. Eat well and be healthy with globally inspired vegetable forward recipes. We joined Linda in the studio to discuss her book and learn how the good doctor's training as a chef is helping her help her patients live healthier lives. So to clarify, I still do work as a primary care doctor, but I get to do the culinary medicine on top of it. And it's really interesting. Until a couple of weeks ago when someone made a comment to me, I hadn't thought of myself as a nonlinear thinker, but I guess that's what I am. That probably explains my route here. You know, so I had done pretty standard stuff becoming a doctor. You know, there's a lot of school that you have to go to, a lot of training. And yet, there's always this creative side of me that I kind of lost. You know, there wasn't time for doing it, and then I kind of forgot that I was a creative person. And I found myself, you know, now 10 years ago, feeling really dissatisfied. So this wonderful thing that I feel really grateful that I get to do now started with dissatisfaction. 
And I was dissatisfied because I felt like I wasn't doing enough for my patients. I felt like I was writing a lot of prescriptions and they weren't necessarily feeling better or getting better. And it was honestly just kind of boring to me. Like I felt like there must be a better way. What were these health situations that you were not seeing any progress with, with your patients? It's basically everything that we all have and that we all see every single day. So even just starting with people not at their ideal weight, that's one thing. But then, you know, other things related to that, like blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, heart disease, all of those things, which are the most common things that we all have and we all see every day, they weren't getting better. Because the truth is no pill can actually make you feel better. I'm not talking about antidepressants, but I'm talking about (laughs) none of these pills make you feel better. They might control your numbers, you know, your lab tests might look better, but they don't actually make you feel better. But eating the right food actually promotes wellness. It makes you feel more energetic, maybe younger, more vibrant, less achy, all of those things. And those are truly the things that I thought as a doctor I should be doing for somebody. So you became a doctor who also teaches cooking? That's such a rare thing. It is rare, um, but it's growing. You know, honestly, it's growing, and it's really great to see more people doing this. Um, I actually, uh, now six years ago, took a year off from being a doctor to go to culinary school. Then I founded a teaching kitchen for patients uh, in San Francisco, and it was the first such place in San Francisco. Um, And what that means is that I teach my patients, other people's patients, and then truly like everybody, the general public, because we are all patients at some point, the very basic thing of how to cook. And for some of these people, they don't cook at all. For many of the others, they actually might cook a lot, but they don't know how to cook the things that will make them healthier and feel better. And you travel with a spice box. Yes. It's more when I'm going to a place long enough that I'm not staying in a hotel, but I'm staying like in an Airbnb or some other rental and therefore cooking most of my food. And, you know, not every place will necessarily have the flavors that you like to cook with. And whatever those are, it's kind of nice to bring those spices with you. So it's a little bit of a sense of home and, and a way to guarantee that you'll like what you're cooking. Your philosophy that cooking spreads happiness and builds bridges and makes a community. It's so inspiring to me. Oh, thank you. It's a gift to me, honestly. You know, as as you probably know, anything dealing with food, um, it's very democratic, right? Everybody cooks, everybody eats. And what I like so much about these cooking classes, even though they're truly a lot of manual labor for me, you know, they're, it's probably the hardest work day that I do. I come back just as inspired and exhilarated as the students who come to the class because it's a, it breaks down barriers, whether that is the doctor-patient barrier or barriers based upon other differences between people. And it, it makes other people feel joyful and confident because I learn something from somebody else every single time. So it's, it's truly very community building. So tell me some of the results that you have been able to see in your patients through your work. So many results. You know, I can't say that everybody has the same results, just like with anything else. But I can't tell you how much positive feedback and like extremely emotional, um, enthusiastic feedback that I've gotten from patients until I started practicing culinary medicine. You know, I will get letters saying, you changed my life. 
I have no doctor has ever done this for me. And it's almost, you know, embarrassing because I feel like all I did was, you know, basically basically teach you how to cut some vegetables and cook them in a way that you enjoy. You did all the work. That is truly the, the case. You know, I'm here as a guide. I think of my teaching cooking to patients as really just another tool in my doctor's bag. Well, now you have made this accessible to everybody through your new book, Spice Box Kitchen. Yes. Why did you call it that? Why is it Spice Box Kitchen? So the reason behind the Spice Box is that I love spices. All the recipes in the book have feature some spice or spices um, because I'm a, I'm a great traveler. I love learning about other people through their food. And so spices came naturally to me that way. There's so much incredible knowledge between these pages. You actually go through some of the healthiest foods and the spices and the herbs and what the nutritional values are mm -hmm. that you can look for and find in that. Um, it's, it's incredible. How hard was it to assemble this kind of knowledge? It was really hard. You know, people ask me the question, how long did it take you to write that book? And, you know, if I'm honest, I say it took me 10 years. I didn't actively work on it for 10 years, but I started out um, learning how to write recipes for my blog, which is Spicebox Travels. And But that, it didn't start out as completely a healthy cooking blog. It's It's morphed over the years. But then all of that nutrition knowledge that goes into those pages, I mean, that's through years and years of reading and learning and going to different certification programs, all of that, that kind of built into this, added on to that, my experience teaching people how to cook over the last 10 years has really taught me what people want to know, what they need to know. And I think that really did allow me to distill it into, you know, not a million pages, but 50 instead. Now, I don't see where in any of the recipes you, you, you're using an inordinate amount of spice mm -hmm. or herb. And so it made me think, well, how much of these things do you actually have to consume to get the health benefits of spices? That is a great question. So, you know, when I talk about using spices or food as medicine, it's not meant as a prescriptive dose. So, and it, it does matter per spice how much you need to have an effect. So the way I like to think about that is using, you know, spices in a way that would taste good from a culinary point of view, you're not going to get actually that much benefit out of that one dose. But I think about using them all the time and using a variety of spices all the time that you will get some sort of gradual chronic benefit. If you're actually looking for, let's say, you know, help with pain. Um, we often talk about turmeric, right? So this is the one that we know is very anti-inflammatory. Um, there is a certain amount of turmeric that you would have to take in. That would be about three to five teaspoons, that's equivalent to maybe 600 to 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. So we know the dosing for certain things, and that might may or may not be the amount that you could take in, in a certain day. But I really encourage people to think about it more as just having it always around, having some spices around for an you know, underlying level of benefit. Talk, talk to me about why um, you put so much faith in pre-washed baby greens yeah. that people should eat them three times a day. 
I am so glad that you picked up on what I think is one of my best simple tips. So overall, in this book and in my classes, I try to make things really, really simple, right? Because cooking should be about pleasure and enjoyment. And if we make things too complicated, then it's another task. So that is one thing I think about. Keep it simple. And then in terms of what would most people benefit from, what's a really high-yield, inexpensive ingredient that most people don't get enough of, and that would be leafy greens. You know, they provide a lot of nutrients and fiber, which is really what most people are deficient in. One of the barriers that people have about not cooking food that might be better for their health is time. And, you know, I'll get people saying, oh, I'm too busy to cook. It takes too long. Greens in particular, they're always so dirty. You have to do a lot of prep, washing, all of that. And I say, go to these pre-washed. You know, they're supposedly triple washed. So that's cleaner than you're going to do it yourself at home, most likely. Baby greens. And the reason for that is that they're convenient. They're inexpensive. If you store them properly, they'll keep for a week or more. And you don't, you know, I say you don't even have to wash them. You don't even have to cut them. And you can eat them either raw or if you throw them into anything else you're cooking, whether that's a stir fry or a soup or a stew, you're adding so much nutrition by doing that. So I do want to point out that all of these recipes, I like to say, taste much more complex than they are. They're actually quite simple to prepare, most of them in 30 minutes or less. So that's one thing. And a second barrier for people, and again, this is from my years of teaching people how to cook, is expense. So I wanted to make sure that pretty much all of these are really all inexpensive ingredients, many of which are pantry staples, so that you don't necessarily have to be, you know, lucky enough to have access year-round to wonderfully fresh produce. A lot of it is much more forgiving, um, including sometimes some frozen ingredients, um, because I'm very aware that I don't want to have that additional barrier. So this is where having those spices and knowing how to use them in which ways and when and in which, which amounts to enhance the flavor of of inexpensive ingredients is key. Because overall, I want the reader who cooks from this cookbook to love the food and not even have to think about the health properties necessarily. You know, that first section is there to refer back to if they want to say, hey, you know, I had kale in this. What does kale do for my body? That information is there. But overall, I want it to be just like any other cookbook experience where you, you eat that and you're like, oh, that was so good. I want to make that again. Dr. Linda Shu, physician, chef, and spice maven. Her new book is Spice Box Kitchen. Eat well and be healthy with globally inspired vegetable forward recipes. Salt a spice or a seasoning? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, 
Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Is salt a spice or a seasoning? Actually, it's neither. Salt is a mineral. Just check the periodic table. And it's very, very different from everything else in your spice cabinet and pantry. For one thing, it doesn't lose its flavor with age. It's a remarkable standalone ingredient that has had a tremendous impact on human history. There are two kinds of culinary salts, sea salt and mined salt, but all salt begins with seawater. Sea salt is evaporated from salty waters, while mined salt comes from ancient deposits left by seas dried up long, long ago. So bless the cook and pass the salt. Or just bless the salt. Life without it would be very, very bland indeed. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Lior Levsercars. I'm the owner and founder of La Boite, located in New York City. One point that I try to convey, a message that I try to send is whether you're a home cook or a professional, you should be using spices in your food on a daily basis. It's not reserved for a certain season of the year. It doesn't have to be a lot. It could be just very few. But do take the time to empty your spice cabinet or, or drawer as often as possible and taste what's in there. Chef and spice blender Lior Levsercars has been called a number of things. Spice therapist, spice magician, and spice master. Owner of La Boite, a spice shop in New York City, Lior is purveyor to some of the best chefs throughout the world. When we sat down with Lior in our studio, he discussed his career's trajectory from sergeant of the Israeli army to spice savant and explained how any cook can benefit from exploiting the spice world. I was born into the worst culinary scene on the planet, uh, which was the 70s in Israel and a kibbutz. But luckily, I was shown better food over my childhood and developed a great passion for food and spices. 
my parents, without even thinking too much, shaped kind of this love for food uh, from the fact that we traveled a lot with them and they always exposed us to different kinds of food. Yes, because uh, even though you're from Israel and lived on a kibbutz, when you all lived and traveled in other places in Europe, there wasn't a pig or a shellfish issue. You all just we went ate, with that. <laughs> there were no kids' menu back then, so uh-huh. I ate what my parents ate. <laughs> and if it was frog's legs at the age of six and uh, different types, and I don't know if I should say that live, but horse meat, which is banned, <laughs> I think, in Europe uh. at this, but it was available when I was a child in Belgium and even later in France. So we tried everything. Uh, Some I liked, some I didn't like, but at least I got exposed to it. And I really saw the passion and the beauty and and what food could do, uh, aside from just the fact that you need to eat to survive, there's way beyond that. And in those days in Israel, food was purely a mean of survival. There was no conversation about food, which I got to experience while living in Europe and uh, how passionate people were about it. Well... Still in Israel, many of your very first, um, the ignitions in your brain about what you were going to later pursue happened. I love the story of how you created your first spice blend. So the, the beauty of Israel is that it's composed out of about 60 to 70 ethnic groups with a lot of uh, food influences. And um as a child, I was already fascinated with, with food and, and nature and being able to just go outside and pick a lot of things. And I'd say the first spice blending experience, without even thinking too much about it, was uh, working again in the kibbutz, in the fish farm industry. And at the end of a, a long fishing day, uh, where you take out a few thousand pounds of, of tilapia or carps or trouts, um, you need to eat something. And uh, it's very easy because you have a lot of fish around you. So you just start a little fire um, and then have to season the fish. And there were a couple of jars of uh, some garlic and and chili and cumin and all sorts of things. And very simply creating that spice blend, rubbing it on a fish and grilling it. And uh, only probably 30 years later, looking back at it, was maybe my first ever spice blend, which I wish I had the recipe for because I don't even remember what it was. It sort of makes that whole idea of spice blending, it it becomes B.C. when you're doing it on the banks of the Galilee, huh? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely, yeah. Then there was a lot more inspiration that came your way in life. I'd love for you to tell me about the Levinsky Spice Market in Tel Aviv. So, um... There is a, is a really nice market in Tel Aviv called yeah, the Levinsky Market. It's, it's probably like two or three blocks of spice vendors, some uh, wholesale, some retail. And I used to spend a lot of hours walking up and down these two or three blocks and sampling things, buying things. Often enough, you walk into that store and they'll offer you uh, some rice that they've just cooked with one of the spices or some dried fruits and they were always pretty puzzled seeing a, a young guy like myself being interested uh, because that's not usually the clientele they used to see. And I used to just buy as much as I could and take it back home and start experimenting and playing with it uh, just because I was so fascinated with this uh, world over there. 
at what point was it in your life that you decided to pursue a career in food? I cooked and learned how to cook from my mom. Uh, oh, I should say without my mom because she was working late. So I would make lunch or dinner quite often when she was running late. And that's my first hands-on experience in cooking. And then uh, following that, I joined the military like most uh, young Israelis do and had to supervise the kitchen staff as part of my duties as a sergeant, learned a little bit about a different way of cooking. And uh, after that, I just had to get a job like, you know, most people do and decided that I would try cooking. I found a young guy who had a catering company who loved the idea that I've never learned professionally how to cook. And he decided to teach me uh, how to cook. And that's, I think, the beginning of, of this more than 20 years uh, love affair with, with food and the culinary world. Lior, the first chef who figures largely in your life is a Frenchman whose name is uh, Chef Rollinger. That is correct, yeah. As part of my um, culinary studies in Lyon at the uh, Paul Bocuse Institute, you are required to do externships. And my second externships led me to Concal, a small town in Brittany, working for Olivier Rollinger, who uh, still is very well known around the world for his cooking, but also usage of spices. And um, it was kind of a life-changing experience, personally and professionally. Uh, the very short eight months that I spent in Concal, I found myself surrounded with bags of exotic spices in a French restaurant in France, in Brittany. It didn't make a whole lot of sense at the beginning. And when I started speaking with Olivier about it, it started making more sense, knowing that uh, Samalo was a very important harbor that imported exotic spices and other things from the Far East three, four hundred years beforehand. Also the idea that you could cook local cuisine, but you have to season it somehow. And seasoning, meaning spices for the most part, do not grow locally. Very few places actually grow them. And his ability to transport people and, and showing them other experiences was thanks to these spices. And uh, that's, I would say, it was my first serious introduction into the world of spices. So then, once you finished your training in Europe, you had the incredible good fortune of landing with the fabulous Chef Danielle Boulou in New York City. Again, a kind of an ironic thing. I lived in France for five years and needed a break from France French people and Lyon, and out of all uh, things, ended up working for a Frenchman from Lyon in New York. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love Daniel dearly. We we spent nearly six years working together, and I owe him uh, a lot, uh, teaching me about quality and generosity and hospitality, and. Uh, I also mainly thank him, and he's well aware of it, for the fact that I am no longer in a kitchen uh, every day, is uh, him being able to open my eyes to the idea that you can express your culinary knowledge even after 20 years as a chef in other domains, uh, whether you're a spice blender, whether you're a writer, a journalist, uh, and so on. Uh, there's a lot that can be done with this beautiful world of the culinary world. 
So you make the decision to become an entrepreneur. And we can all go shopping with you at La Boite Online, no matter where we are in the world. However, in <laughs> Hell's Kitchen in New York City, would you take us on a typical shopping experience at your store? Absolutely. So when um, somebody comes to our store and the store is open to the public, we don't just serve the professional uh, industry. It's important for myself or for the, the, the great staff that works at La Boite to understand who you are and help you understand that you are you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if your big thing is just microwaving frozen food, which is totally fine by me, or if you're on the contrary, butchering your own animals, that's great. There are different ways that you should or can season your food and, and what your likes and dislikes. I often like ask people what they hate before I ask them what they like. And I find that uh, very liberating for a lot of people. Uh, and then after that, we could start suggesting a few spice blends that we think would work. My goal is to have you leave us and, and run as fast as you can to a kitchen nearby and start cooking or, or start eating and experimenting with the spices, knowing that uh, we make blends that are not meant for just one thing. Uh, we invite you to try each and every of the 80 or so blends on anything from coffee, tea, savory, sweet beverages. Uh, just try them. Some might not work that great, but for the most part, they will work and, and you will never look back. Coming up next, our conversation with Lior Lev Sirkars continues as he tells us how he works with chefs to make custom blends for their restaurants. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with visionary spice savant Lior Lev Sirkars, owner of La Boite in New York City. 
our aromatic education in herbs and spices continues. Lior, I think there might still be some confusion in people's mind about the difference between herbs and spices. Would you demystify that? Sure. To me, there's no difference. My uh, definition of, of spices is completely different than the dictionaries. To me, spices equal seasoning. So everything you choose to season your food or beverage with, to me, is a spice, whether it's sugar, whether it's uh, berries, cheese. As long as it's in a dry form, uh, to me, it's a spice. So there's really no distinction between herbs and spices or grains and rhizomes and barks and berries. And we use cheese powder. We use seafood powder. They're spices to me. Uh, I would say this. Uh, you have to taste and educate yourself the same way that you would not buy a bad piece of meat or fish or vegetable. Why would you buy something that you have no idea what it tastes like? And maybe you don't like salt or maybe you don't like pepper. And that's fine by me. Don't have them in your kitchen. Uh, the fact that recipes call for seasoning with salt and pepper doesn't mean you have to use salt and pepper. You could use hot sauce. Oh, you could use caper or fish sauce to replace your salt if that's. But embrace yourself and have what you need at home, not what you are told. So you're in the grocery store and you're buying spices. So you, you want to make sure, for one thing, in a jar of something that's in a relatively whole condition, there's not any little powder down at the bottom. Are there any other... Signs? Are there any? Is there any labeling that exists that people should be aware of? Uh, I sadly, the labeling uh, requirements are very loose in terms of best before, where it's from, how it's sanitized. But it's going to change. I'm, I'm fairly confident. What you can do at your local store is do a few quick things. Is if a bag says whole black peppercorn, yet there's also bits of yellow and beige and brown in it, then it really doesn't deliver on the word black. If there's a lot of powder in the bottom, it doesn't deliver on the way whole because it's powdered. So stay away from that package or that brand. Price is not always a sign of quality. However, in the spice world, spices that cost a little more could be better because they were sourced more responsibly. They were packed better. Uh, so you might want to stick with those, knowing that you get great quality, you're going to use less of that spice versus the 99 cent spice where you're going to have to dump half a jar to make a statement or a point. You mentioned um, your work with the professional trade. How do you get into the mind and the palate of a chef? In order for me to create a blend for a chef or, or a professional or a bartender for that matter, uh, we have to start dating in a way. Uh, <laughs> I would like to know who they are, you know, what what they like to cook, what they like to eat, uh, so that I understand. Even if we are talking about a particular dish, my goal is to make a blend that is timeless uh, and that they will be able or some other people will be able to use it forever on many things. So to make a blend, I need an idea, a concept, a story. Is I do this exercise. I said, this blend is going to be great because... And I try to complete that sentence. And if it works, then I could get going. So it could be a person. It could be a place, an experience, a dish that I ate. And I really write down the keywords that describe that experience. Thanks to the years of professional blending uh, experience that I have, I can put next to these uh, words spices that will represent 
coarse or yellow or hot or sour. And then I have a, a little ingredient list all of a sudden. And then I start limiting the amount of things. And I pretty much end up with a recipe right then and there uh, that allows me to go to my uh, spice shelves and start grabbing these six, ten ingredients and measuring them very precisely on a scale. Also deciding what I will grind, what I will not grind, and to what degree will I toast some of them or will I not? Not everything needs to be or, or uh, should be. The rest is pretty mechanical. Uh, it's toasting, grinding, combining. I never, ever uh, judge a spice blend right then and there uh, for a couple of reasons. A, the temperature is still pretty warm. The second is that uh, the people that will purchase that spice blend will never see it the same way. So it might be a month before they actually see it. I would like to be in their shoes a month later and to know what they're going to experience. So I do sometimes go back every couple of days until I figure out uh, what I need to adjust, if I need to adjust. Luckily, over time, I became a bit better at what I do. So there's less room for errors. But every so often, I will start again just because I had one idea and it didn't deliver. Or the funny thing is that I would work on one idea and, and go to a complete different one uh, uh, and end up with another and end up making two blends, wanting to make just one. Now, you've put your hands on, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of spices in your lifetime. Is there a holy grail of spice discovery that you're waiting to happen in your life? I don't know. I am My goal that I hope that I will never reach is to create uh, a spice blend that will capture the scent of rain or after the rain, which is to me the most fascinating scent ever. I like tobacco and I like rubber and I like spices. I'm intrigued by scents to begin with and flowers. The The holy grail to me is the scent after the rain and in different parts of the world because it smells differently. And I really hope I'm never going to get there because <laughs> then what? <laughs> I am just so thrilled to have had this chance to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for making the time to visit with us. And don't you come back here without calling us again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> World-renowned spice expert, Lior Lev Sirkars. My name is Natasha McEller, and I'm the author of Spice Health Heroes. After embarking on a dream to become a professional ballerina at the age of 13, Natasha McEller realized there was a shelf life for dancers and started taking culinary classes during her seasonal layoffs. Upon graduating from the Colorado Culinary Institute in 1996, Natasha leapt into a second career as a professional chef. We spoke with the dancing chef to discuss her book, Spice Health Heroes, Unlock the Power of Spice for Health, Flavor, and Well-Being. Natasha, 
Congratulations on your book and welcome to Louisiana Eats. Tell me about um, how a dancer becomes a chef. It's very interesting to me. Well, I was quite fortunate to know what I wanted to do when I was six years old, which was to be a ballerina. And uh, thankfully, I was supported by my parents, and off I went to ballet class. And part of being a dancer is being conscious of what you're eating. And so there was always a fascination with food, sometimes quite an obsession with food. I became fascinated with the process of of food and flavors and tasting and and making beautiful things. And as I said in Vanilla Table, my my other book, the only art form that I'm aware of that has a sell-by date is the art of dance. You know, an artist, a singer, they can improve, they can grow as they get older, and a dancer has to retire. So I chose to get into cooking. One day you end up on the shelf. And you decided you'd rather be on the pantry shelf? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I didn't have to turn my feet out so much, but still long long hours of, of um, standing on one's feet and, and being physically active uh, and being creative. And it's, it's um, pastry and food. It's an art form as well. It's, it's presented to an audience who enjoy it, who experience it, and all that's left is the memory as a performance in the theater. Tell me, why are spices health heroes? Very good question. Spices are are my health heroes. I've selected 30 spices that have not only beautiful flavors, they're also packed full of nutrients, and they're packed full of, of health-enabling compounds. And it's been a, a fascinating journey. I've, I've teamed up with a number of chefs from around the world and also a number of medical doctors from around the world working together to promote and to make um, the reader aware of culinary medicine. Natasha, I loved the way you broke down the spices into various categories, and I'd like to go through some of your categories. So let's talk about the immune spices. And I'd really like to know the truth about turmeric, the spice you refer to as the master spice. Turmeric. Oh, my goodness. Where do I begin? Turmeric or or turmeric. They're both uh, acceptable to say. Um, Turmeric is a major component of Indian cuisine, what we call Indian cuisine, um, uh, your curry blend. It is the most studied and researched spice uh, in the world, and primarily uh, in India. It's been used in Ayurvedic alternative medicine, you know, the ancient Indian medicine for thousands and thousands of years. And there are studies going on to to reduce inflammation, um, joint inflammation, arthritis. It's also been studied for staving off Alzheimer's. Its available um, component is called curcumin, not to be confused with cumin. It supports the liver. It's got analgesic benefits. Did you know that one of the compounds in turmeric is used in Tylenol? I learned that in your book, Natasha. Thank you. And I was amazed. I was just amazed to learn that. And then as you go through your other immune spices, which include garlic and Rosemary was really fascinating to me because all the stuff about the carcinogens that come from uh, blackened, darkened, grilled 
meats and such on the charcoal. And yet you say that if you cook with rosemary when you're doing this, you combat some of that effect. Yes, it's it was one of the most fascinating and thrilling compounds that I discovered through one of my contributing doctors who explains about the active compound. It it helps block the carcinogenic properties of burning meat. And you can use it as a marinade. You can just sprinkle a little bit of dried rosemary or fresh rosemary needles into a marinade or just sprinkle it on your meat as it's cooking or as I used in uh, my lamb, my marinated lamb dish, I used both. I used it in the marinade and also cooked the, the lamb on rosemary skewers on the barbecue. There was a fascinating study I read for college students who are cramming for classes to make a rosemary tea. And I've got a recipe in the beginning uh, all about rosemary to make a rosemary tea and add a little bit of cocoa. The rosemary is to help with clarity and the cocoa with energy, and it tastes good too. Natasha, why is garlic the Russian penicillin spice? Because of its very powerful antibiotic properties. This was recorded during World War II. It was used to help uh, the soldiers who were, of course, going through this terrible uh, winter, and they ran out of traditional antibiotics such as penicillin, and so they resorted to garlic, which is ancient penicillin. Well, when we move on to the energy spices, you refer to black pepper as the king. Oh, most certainly black pepper is the king. Peppercorn, black peppercorn, and green and white, those are all the same variety, contain this active compound, fascinating compound called piperine. And the piperine is a bioenabler. And that means a substance that when paired with nutrients or even medicine can maximize the absorption and longevity of the active compounds in the bloodstream. So what it's saying is that if you have something that's super nutritious, add some peppercorn to it. I can't quite do it in my coffee yet, but I use it in many, many of my dishes. It helps allow the the nutrients, and they're even doing studies on medicines to remain in the body longer, thereby giving you more benefit without having to have more of those nutrients. And with the turmeric, of course, it stays in longer, so it helps with the arthritic and pain complaints. So I love it. Well, congratulations, and I have to tell you, it's informative, and it's so beautiful, it's just about lickable. So, (laughs) (laughs) All right, I've done my job. Uh, Manya's photos are are just tremendous. Beautiful, beautiful work from cover to cover. Thank you so much for writing Spice Health Heroes, and we look forward to talking with you soon in person on Louisiana Eats. Oh, my pleasure, Poppy. Thank you so much. That was the dancing chef, Natasha McAller, author of Spice Health Heroes. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Looking for some summertime fun? The last Sunday of every month, we're hosting a Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Tujac's Restaurant. 
This family-friendly event includes three courses, five drag queens, and, of course, bottomless mimosas. Reservations may be made online and by calling 504-525-8676. You can catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit GulfCoastBlenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team, Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.